Welcome to Doing a World of Good, a podcast from the American Institute of Chemical Engineers. Today's episode is generously underwritten by Scott and Karen Love to shine the light on process engineers and the work they do to positively impact society. I'm your host, Bob Norp. For today's episode, we continue our series focusing on process engineers and the highly valued role they play within both business and research. First up, we have Dr. Jill Craven. Jill is a tool installation engineer at Intel, where she oversees and troubleshoots the installation of new process equipment. Jill, welcome to the program. Thank you. And joining her, we welcome Dr. Ogachaku Anagwizu. Um, Ogo is a postdoctoral associate of aerosol microphysics at Brookhaven National Laboratory, where her research focuses on the microphysical, hydroscopic, and optical properties of black carbon from fossil fuels and biomass combustion. Ogo, welcome. Thanks, happy to be here. Now, I'd love for you both to answer this question as we get going, and I'll start with you, Ogo. What was it that led you to process engineering as a career? What was it that formed that as being the goal for your career and your professional life? Um, So I didn't always start off wanting to be a process engineer. I, I remember when I was in elementary school, I wanted to be a teacher. And then when I got to middle school or high school, I actually wanted to be an accountant like my dad. So I was really <laughs> way off. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a big difference from process engineering yeah, to accounting. Really way off. Um, but what kind of started it all for me was just a simple science experiment where um, a chemistry teacher put a lump of sodium in water. <laughs> so this exothermic reaction was just the most awesome thing I'd ever seen before. And I said to myself, I want to be able to do stuff like that. Um, And I can't do that as an accountant. So um, from high school, I started taking um, classes in physics and chemistry and math. And for me, combining those three subjects together basically meant engineering. Um, And uh, but I also had um, to figure out what kind of engineering I wanted to do. Um, I had a huge family influence. My brother was studying electrical engineering um, and he was like, yeah, you should go, you should be an electrical engineer. But I didn't want to be an electrical engineer. Um, <laughs> but somehow um, I started thinking, what is it I really like? I love chemistry and I love math and I love physics. And I was like, how do I apply these things with something that's going to be a little bit heavier on the chemistry side of things? And that's how I came around to chemical engineering. I felt that if I was a chemical engineer, I could fit in everywhere because every process, every industry, everything basically starts from a process or chemical engineer. And so that's that's kind of how I ended up um, deciding that chemical engineering was the right discipline for me. Well, my dad was disappointed because I wasn't going to be an accountant anymore, but (laughs) he was happy for me. Yeah, it sounds like a, a fascinating decision. I mean, it's just like, it's tough to go against your parents, but when you're going after something that you love and you really you know, have all the talents for it, I can understand why that drew you to this particular career. Um, same question to you, Jill. How did you get uh, enamored with um, chemical engineering, process engineering, and, and what was the journey you took? Yeah, so actually similar to Ogo, um, when I started my journey, I also was very interested in education and I was not considering uh, industry 
or process engineering in industry. Actually, my father was a process engineer in industry. So I remember as a child when he had to like leave the Christmas dinner table once because he was the plant manager or the on-call engineer. I wasn't sure what, but there was an emergency on his plant and he had to like leave the Christmas dinner table. And it was like, oh no, you know, like what, why is dad leaving? And so I remember thinking, oh, I, I really want to teach engineering, but I don't know if I want to like be in the plant environment. But that being said, um, I remember he gave us a tour of one of his plants and I was young. I was very young, probably 10 or 12 maybe. And everybody in our family who was older got to climb up this ladder to go look at the top of the plant and see all of the unit operations from like a top down view. But because I was young, my dad was like, you know, concerned about my safety. He was like, you don't, I'm not, you're not going to come up the ladder um, when you're older, I'll take you up here. But I remember seeing the equipment, seeing the plant and really being attracted to it, wanting to know how it worked and being also simultaneously disappointed that I couldn't get to see it like like everyone else who was on the tour. Um, so anyway, you know, fast forward, I had a lot of support from my family um, throughout high school and college with my interests. Um, actually, my grandpa was a math teacher on my mom's side. So that was an influence. And then my grandma on my dad's side, actually, I distinctly I have this memory of being in high school and we lived in Arizona at the time and she was in the pool and she like um, came out of the pool to help me understand what a derivative was and helped me with my calculus homework. So this is like a 70 something woman, like helping me do my math homework. She and my <laughs> grandpa were both chemists. And so I had a lot of familial influence um, from a very young age. So I, I went to school. I really loved the uh, faculty at University of Arizona, they were very enthusiastic and passionate um, professors. So I, the, that's kind of what solidified my interest in be, becoming um, like an engineering educator. So that was the motivation for me to go to um, graduate school. And I ended up getting my doctorate. And along the way, I really discovered my passion for equipment development, troubleshooting equipment, um, and also that combined with my, you know, my favorite undergraduate class and graduate level class was process control theory um, led me to actually applying for jobs in industry versus becoming a, a faculty member myself. So I was initially motivated to, to stay in academics. But like I said, as along the way in my seven years in academics, um, I decided I wanted to go. I really did want to go into industry um, and, and become a process engineer. Well, I mean, it's amazing to me how many people get their start in in engineering purely out of a love for problem solving. I mean, it's just like getting to the heart of a problem and figuring it out. And that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about next. Um, I want to talk about each of your work. Uh, Ogo, so much of what you're doing is tied to combating climate change, is it not? I mean, could you maybe elaborate on that and tell us a, a bit more about what you're doing on a day to day basis? Sure, of course, I'd be happy to share. Um, so all I do every day is problem solve. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's kind of funny, uh, you know, you mentioned this because just before this podcast, I was in an hour long meeting with my boss where we were trying to solve a problem. So yeah, it's my it's my everyday life. Um, but what I do is I study aerosols and aerosols are just tiny particles suspended in air. 
um, and they can be gas or they can be uh, liquid or solid actually. And I focus on a specific type of aerosol, one that comes from combustion and wildfires. And if anyone's been reading the news lately, there have been a lot of wildfires going on, not just in the US, but also around the globe. And um, one thing about climate change is, you know, there's so much focus on carbon dioxide, rightly so, uh, because it's a climate forcer. And what I mean by that is that it traps outgoing solar um, infrared radiation, and that helps to uh, heat up or warm the atmosphere. Also, CO2 has a very long lifetime, so it persists in the atmosphere. Aerosols, on the other hand, have, on the other hand, have shorter lifetimes. And, but um, the one particular aerosol I'm intrigued by is black carbon um, or soot as it's also commonly called. Mm. And the key thing about that is it absorbs light and then heats up the atmosphere. So it has the same kind of effect as, as CO2 does, but as a particulate in a particulate form. And, um, but the other thing about it is that it's short lived. So it doesn't persist in the atmosphere for on the order of centuries and lots and lots of years that like CO2 does. But one of the things about aerosols is they're so variable. They vary in structure and concentration and pipe and composition. And that introduces a lot of uncertainties um, when climate scientists try to model the impacts of these um, aerosols on our climate, not just climate, but health too. So we have this just huge variability because of the, because of how aerosols are, and they introduce a lot of uncertainty in estimates made by scientists. So that's kind of one of the key things I'm, you know, actively involved in. We have to try and, you know, make sense of these uncertainties, and we can only do that by studying these aerosols um, around the globe. So. I'm part of a government um, lab, a Department of Energy lab that is involved in sampling aerosols from different locations around the world, studying their properties and trying to make sense of how they impact not just our health, but our climate. So that's kind of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, basically I look at real life and I try to mimic it in, in the lab and I try to explain what's happening in real life in real life by simulating those conditions in the lab. So it's an everyday challenge of trying to make sense of what's happening in nature and how we can mitigate some of the effects of climate change. It's really fascinating work. Um, and I, I find it particularly interesting that you talked about soot being black and that black absorbs heat. I mean, it's just like yes. it's just 101 in terms of how things work. So that's interesting how that uh, affects the climate so drastically. Um, Jill, tell us about your work as well. Um, uh, some of the things that you're doing, it sounds like you're part engineer, part diplomat. Uh, you interface with so many facets of an organization. Tell, <laughs> tell us a little bit more about it. Oh, I love that I identity um, characterization. Maybe I'll start using that. So yeah, for my job, I've had a, um, two different roles at Intel, but I identify both under the umbrella as process engineers. So when I first started, I was a, a development and sustaining engineer. So I was working on helping keep the factory up, like uh, making sure all the different operations were working or my, I focused on one particular operation um, <clears throat> and, and sustained the factory. But then um, at the development site at Intel, the engineers are also responsible for figuring out um, the next technology node. So that was also a huge part of my job. 
but then I transitioned into a new role. A uh, really important part of process engineering is making sure the equipment that you're using is up to date and compatible with whatever new technology you're developing. Um, so the role I have now is actually like way upstream from uh, the product going through the factory. So we have this campus um, where we have tons of equipment coming into the factory every day. And in, in fact, the campus I'm working on now is currently expanding. Um, it makes local news all the time because it's the biggest facility around and we had to have huge cranes built on site to carry certain um, uh, infrastructure of the factory to, to move it into place. So it's it makes local news all the time here in Hillsboro. Um, <laughs> so now what I do is I'm helping fill that factory with process equipment so that we can get things running up to production. So my job is to, um, it's, it starts with working with people who are design engineers. So we take the information from the um, whoever supplies the piece of equipment and we figure out how it's gonna be integrated into the factory uh, facilities. So that involves working with designers, which I help oversee, and I provide tool-specific information to that process, either based on experience or based on what we'd like to see. And then I work with a group of people called factory infrastructure engineers. So those are the people that um, work on the layout of how everything is going to be uh, installed from like a like a over overall perspective and how this one unit operation is going to uh, interact with the other unit operation. Um, and then we also work with uh, lots of tradespeople. So the uh, construction workers, the mechanical contractors, the, elect the electricians, um, very directly working with them. So during COVID, um, I was one of the uh, one one of the people on the team that wasn't sent home because we're working with people who are who are actually working on very directly installing the equipment where a lot of the process engineers could do a lot of their work remotely and they were asked to remain home you know for COVID safety um, but people in my role had to remain on site then we also work on um, we also work with supply chain engineers. So if we find that there's a problem with the piece of equipment or how it's designed, right? We have to go then work with the people who are responsible for getting the materials to, to campus. Um, and then the final group that I work with is the process development team that I'm gonna be handing the equipment off to. So my role is, is basically overseeing the entire process of getting the equipment there all the way from the supply chain side to working with people who are putting it into the factory to then getting the equipment working up to a point where we can start qualifying production material on it. Um, and I that part is my favorite part of the job because I used to be a process engineer, uh, a process development engineer. So often in my role, um, I get to help train because a lot of the people who are responsible for qualifying the equipment might be brand new to the factory, or maybe they haven't interfaced with a new piece of equipment before. So because of my experience, I get a lot of opportunity to train those engineers about, look, these are the systems that help keep your uh, piece of equipment uh, compliant from an uh, environmental health and safety perspective, from a uh, like line up, making sure it's like continuously operating. I can talk to them about preventative maintenance, you know, the uh, basically there's a bunch of aspects of running a piece of equipment that I had from my previous role that I can then transfer to these to these engineers. Um, and then another part of my job is um, troubleshooting, like we had said. So 
My favorite part of my job is actually that it does require me to be in the field. So in a clean room facility, there's multiple levels of a factory. It's not just like you walk in and there's just a floor. We have the main fab where we have to wear our clean room suits. And when I started working for Intel, I thought it was going to be like those advertisements I saw in the 80s where like the um, the bunny suits wearing like these neon colored you know, I don't know if you guys remember these ads, but um, I remember being like, oh, I get to work in that factory. So we have to wear it. There's no different color bunny suit. It's just one color. But um, <laughs> the the thing I love about the fab is it's just it's it's an exciting place to work. The first time I walked in, I, I thought I was on a spaceship um, because there's all the process equipment. But then on the either the floor or on the ceiling, there's these train tracks with robots running around um, carrying the the product, the wafers. Um, so it's there's always all these moving parts that you have to, you know, make sure you're aware of. But so there's the main fab, but then there's also the sub fab. Um, and then there's even things up above the main fab. So each piece of equipment is integrated into all these different levels. And um, it, it, you know, wherever there's something that's moving, um, there's an opportunity for it to break and you have to troubleshoot it. So a big part of my job, especially when I'm installing a new piece of equipment is to go help troubleshoot what's wrong. So sometimes it's really hard to communicate over the phone, especially with a brand new configuration of equipment or something that's being put in for the first time, never had maintenance done on it. Um, I'm a very visual person. So I like to go actually put eyes on it and then work with the mechanical contractors, the electricians to come up with a solution um, on the, on the spot. So I, I used to be a caving instructor in college, so I like to tell people I use my spelunking skills, my caving skills to crawl under uh, pieces of equipment and, you know, basically figure out where the wire is broken or, you know, where the pipe is leaking um, uh, to help to help troubleshoot an equipment issue. So I love that part of my job. So it's a very people focused job where I get to interact with a lot of different kinds of people. I get to train a lot with the new engineers that are going to be getting the equipment. And then I get to help with the uh, troubleshooting uh, on the factory floor. And life goes full circle because it's just like, I, I like earlier, you were talking about your father and about him, him having to leave Christmas to go oh, to the factory. Yes. And here you are during COVID having to go to the factory and make sure everything's still working well. <laughs> Um, well, but, and yeah, and I, I definitely have worked my fair share of holidays. I, I, I'm not on call anymore. I have switched to a role where I don't have to answer my phone after a certain time, <laughs> unless it's a major catastrophe. But um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it is kind of funny how I ended up in a very similar role. In fact, I just started training on how to do demolition because we're, everything's always moving around in the factory. And for like a decade, my dad did, um, what's it called when a plant is decommissioned and you have to like demo the entire facility. He did that. Like he oversaw that for his company for a long time. So I was kind of laughing that we kind of came to similar <laughs> projects, but we took different paths to get there. Well, something you said um, about mentorship really resonated with me and I'd love to go to Ogo and start with her and maybe have both of you talk a little bit about the role of mentorship in the further furtherance of your career, um, what role did mentorship play for you, and how do you try to play it forward going, you know, going forward in your career? Um, yeah, so for me, mentorship played a really, really, really big role. Um, starting from um, 
I would say my master's when I got my master's degree in chemical engineering at the University of Houston. One of my very first mentors was my thesis advisor, who um, Dr. Michael Harold at the University of Houston. He was the chair of the department, um, and he was also managing the energy uh, uh, services uh, operation there at um, the U of H campus. So he was my very first mentor. And then um, I should have mentioned that um, um, I actually worked in industry for three years for Kellogg Brown and Root. And I also had another batch of mentors there. Um, one of them was Mike Smith. He was my direct supervisor. Um, and um, I was serving as a young process engineer for um, a, a polyethylene plant, I believe. And um, so he was one of those, as well as um, Adriana Beretti of KBR. Those were the two mentors I interfaced with most of the time. And also, yeah, the project lead, Sanjeev Londi. Um, so I had a variety of mentors who helped me with the day-to-day -day aspects of becoming um, a chemical engineer, a process engineer, a young process engineering industry. I was out to prove myself. Um, and they were really instrumental in just, you know, helping me focus, helping me um, figure out what my career path was going to be like. Um, and uh, when I decided I wanted to go back to grad school, they were all very supportive, which now brings me down to my uh, my thesis advisor for grad school, Dr. Alexei Kalazov, who is still today a very, very dear friend and really instrumental with um, with my path. Actually, he's the one who recommended me for the position that I am at here at Brookhaven National Lab. Oh, um, wow. And yeah, he, you know, they were like, oh, we need someone whose um, research um, kind of aligns with wildfire aerosols who studies black carbon. And he's like, my student studies black carbon. <laughs> she would be perfect for you. Um, and voila, here I am at uh, Brookhaven <laughs> National Lab. So yeah, mentors have played a tremendous role for me. Um, they have been able to help me uh, figure out where, what it is I want to do, um, expose me to the right people. A lot of things that people don't realize is that mentorship can provide um, a huge amount of networking benefits for you and you know help guide you to the right people who will further your career path. And they have been that for me. On my end, um, during grad school, I basically got to mentor um, about 10 students. <laughs> so that was something, um, it was something my um, professor in grad school really believed in. He's like, you know, pay it forward. I'm teaching you so you can teach others. And through that, um, I had about uh, four high school students and about six undergrad students whom I mentored during the four years I spent getting my PhD. I'm happy to say that one of them is now, you know, in his sophomore year in chemical engineering. Um, I'm very proud of that because I wrote a recommendation letter for him and he got into the, the first university of his choice. So I was really, really, really proud of him. <laughs> That's got to be and so then, gratifying. <laughs> I know, I was so happy. And then the other one who was a physics major um, has decided to pursue a PhD because he he was inspired by the fact that I was, you know, getting my PhD and he's like, I want to be, you know, I want to do what you do. I want to be able to be successful like you are. And I think like, you know, I never considered grad school, but seeing you do it has made me want to be a grad school. And then the third one, she just started pursuing her 
a master's um, in um, environmental science. <laughs> um, and she just got accepted. And a part of that, she says, was like, you know, working with me. And I think the best um, feedback of being a mentor that I've, I had was this young um, high school student. Um, she struggled with math. And mm. um, <laughs> for any STEM degree, there's a lot of math. And it was, I would say so. <laughs> she struggled with it, and she was assigned to me um, because um, um, I went to I got my PhD at New Jersey Institute of Technology, and a lot of times they do a lot of um, su summer programs for both high school, elementary, middle school students, and um, she um, she was assigned to our lab. This young uh, girl from from Ghana, actually, um, I'm an immigrant myself. I'm from Nigeria. And um, she was, uh, she was like, I want to be like you. I want to be able to do this stuff. But her math was um, terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> she, and in order to, you know, help her run, do a few calculations in the lab, because aerosols, um, there's a lot of physics involved. There's a lot of math. I'm studying particle optics. I mean, you know, people might think, you know, just working with um, atmospheric aerosols, there's no place for an engineer. I think of the atmosphere like one big reactor. <laughs> so I'm just like, oh yeah, you know, thermodynamics, food, mech, all of that applies in so many different ways. And this young girl just didn't really know how to do math. So I it took a while, but I took my time and I trained her and I basically organized a math class, which she had to do every day of the week for the whole time she was there. And she improved tremendously. So much so that she actually won an award for oh, her wow. research. And um, I got featured in her school's article for being one of the mentors that helped her um, improve. And now she wants to study biochemistry. Um, so she wants to do a, she wants to be a STEM major. Um, now it wasn't something she was really considering, but giving her improvement, she wants to be um, a STEM major. So mentorship is something that's really near and dear to me because I've just had so many people who have helped me along my path as a process engineer, both in um, industry and in academia, and now in a government agency. Um, and so I really, it's something I, I'm really passionate about and something that I continue doing. Um, my mentee still checking with me the same way I still checking with my mentors. So yeah, it's, it's a really rewarding experience to not just to take, but also to give back. It sounds like it sounds like it's really been a, a huge part of your life. Um, Jill, what about you? What role has mentorship played in your in your life and how are you paying it forward? Um, yeah, actually, when Ogo was speaking, I was like kind of like nodding my head the whole time. I was like, yeah, 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 because yeah. I, I feel like uh, mentorship has been a huge being mentored has been a huge part of my success as a process engineer. Um, so um, the actually, I'm going to put a twist on it. Um, so the technical mentorship has been critical and huge for me to push forward and be successful as an engineer. But looking back on some of my early mentors, I also had an affinity for people who had um, like work-life balance, basically, as part of the mentoring aspect. So one mm. of my first mentors was um, a professor called uh, Dr. Paul Blowers at University of Arizona. And he um, I think was a good work-life balance mentor, not just because he he mentored me on how to make the most out of my college experience, 
um, and helped me prepare for what I wanted to do after. But he also like had his son in his office. He had a, he had a child when we were there. And um, I say we, cause I met my husband in my undergraduate program. Right. Um, so me, me and him. So anyway, we, he had a child when um, he was there and he would have his child in his office. And then um, it was like, basically a very family friendly family oriented department because even the department head or she was department head at the time you know she had a she had told me she had a baby gate in her office when her kids were little and the kids would have to like step over the baby gate to get um to get to her desk to help with the homework and anyway so I felt like um it was not ever a question that you couldn't be have a child and be a chemical engineer. So from the very mm. get go, that was like my message, which I really appreciated. Um, Cause I, I waited quite a long time to start having children, but I just, it was never negatively communicated to me that it would be a challenge. Um, and then in grad school, I, um, I had a faculty advisor who was a really awesome mentor because not only was he helping me, uh, Dr. Rick Flagan, he he was one of my thesis advisors. Um, he would help me with things like how to be fearless when it comes to troubleshooting a piece of equipment. Like it's because of him that I can just like tear open like the top of a piece of equipment and just like safely, of course, and, and just figure <laughs> out what's wrong. Um, I remember when I first started in his lab, he had a lot of equipment that was um, either working or not working. And if something wasn't working, he'd be like, go look in that closet over there and find a broken piece and like incorporate it into this one over here. So like, I, Ogo will know what this is. I had to build my own differential mobility analyzer, which was like a particle um, size selector thing because all of the ones we had either were like not, they were not brand new. So we basically had to learn how to calibrate our own components from old pieces of equipment, rebuild them, and then integrate them into our own system. Um, so he was like an equipment technical mentor. But on the other side of that, he talked to me a lot about, um, I guess, for better or for worse, like family planning, because I, I had been married for like five years at that point. He also um, had a wife and several children that were grown. And I remember on a field campaign, I asked him, I said, you know, when you go into the field, th this is in graduate school before industry, when you go into the field, like, um, do you bring your family with you? Like when you had small children, did they like, you know, did they come with you? And he like really he was like very sensitive because it, it can be like a, a sensitive topic for some people. He was like in his chemical and mechanical engineering way said, you know, Jill, he's like, whenever you and your partner decide to have children, there's there's no good time. But whenever you do decide, it will be turbulent. And I love that he used the word turbulent. You know, <laughs> we're all chemical engineers. He's like, the flow will be turbulent. Um, and he said he shared with his experience. He was like, you know, I had a partner who had a job and my kids were in school, so I wasn't able to bring them. But I would go visit them on the weekends every weekend, you know. And, and then he said other colleagues whose spouses didn't work could join them in the field. So he like he didn't like encourage me or discourage me. He just like told me different models that worked. So it was like working with him. And he also like mentored me on like having a stress relief activity. So like I got to borrow his kayak and go kayaking on the Kern as like a, as like a stress release from research. You know, he was like, yeah, come borrow my kayak, go, go do something fun on the weekend. So he was like modeling really awesome, like, you know, becoming a technical expert, but then also like he modeled like what it was like to like, have a life outside of work. So that I, looking back, I feel was like a very valuable mentorship opportunity because um, uh, yeah, he just, 
he imparted so much knowledge to me that wasn't just the technical chemical engineering aspect. Um, and then in, in currently I have a mentor, uh, my graduate program reached out to uh, a bunch of recent grads. So I recent, it was 2013 when I got my PhD, but they basically, they <laughs> paired us. It, it feels like it was just yesterday, but they paired us with people who were senior to us. So my, I have a mentor, Carol Adkins. She got a, she's retired now, but when um, she got a PhD from my advisor 30 years ago. So I have really enjoyed talking to her and she's helped me through my motherhood uh, transition and reintegration of process engineering into my life because I was a process engineer prior to becoming a mother. I'm still a process engineer three kids later. So she and she was also a mom. I, I put that on my request for mentorship, like someone who has, you know, f figured out how to be a mother and a process engineer. And so she's been really helpful with interweaving the technical like achievement aspect of mentoring, but also like like the logistics of like, you know, you know, how do you get them on the school bus and then, you know, or whatever the, the how do you help them with homework or who's your support? Um, so my mentors have really been this like super combination of basically being parents and engineers. And those, those have been very helpful. Um, and then on the other side of it, I have actually really missed student members mentorship. When I was in graduate school, I mentored a lot of students. So I was at Caltech for seven years because I did my PhD in uh, postdoc there. So I felt like by the end of my experience, I was like the lab mother hen. I had a lot of students under my wing. I, I taught people how to write. I taught people how to calibrate their equipment. I taught them how to break things when they or fixed, not break things, fix things when they broke. Um, and I really enjoy the training people how to be successful in the field, um, which is a big part of my job now in industry. Um, so I do, I don't find, I, I mentor a lot of people in my current role, but I, I still have some tendrils of connection to academics. Um, but it's something I'm active with actively working on improving. Unfortunately for me, there's not a lot of chemical engineering um, in Portland. It's all like south of me in Corvallis. Um, but, you know, I always am jumping at the opportunity if someone wants to talk about engineering in general or working in the industry, I, I like to do it more on an ad hoc um, opportunity. Wow. I mean, that sounds really, really great. I mean, the opportunity to give people life work balance is such a such an important thing for so many people in so many different industries. Um, let's uh, our time is almost up. I mean, we we've, time just flew as we were talking about before. But I would love for you guys to each close with one piece of advice that you'd give to a young professional. We do have a lot of um, college students and young professionals listening to the program. So I, I'd love for you each to share a little piece of wisdom. So Oga, would you go first? Sure. Um, I would say to them to stay curious. <laughs> um, mm. That's, that's one thing that, um, that's one thing that um, I've always done and I still keep doing. And I think one piece of advice that someone gave me that has stuck for so long is, you know, don't be terrified of your failures. Um, you learn a lot more from your failures sometimes than you do from your successes. And um, I've, you know, in my path to becoming um, who I am right now, both as a, you know, transitioning from grad school to working in industry to, you know, going back to grad school to working in for the government now, 
um, there have been a lot of times where I've you know screwed up or made mistakes and um, I learned from it. You just, you get back up, um, you learn from it and you be better. So there's always room for improvement. There's always room to make yourself better. And um, um, whatever you might think is impossible is not really possible. You just need, it's not really impossible. You just need to check, change your mindset. Um, and yeah, so those are those are a few things I would suggest for them to do. And also get a mentor. <laughs> Mentors, <laughs> no, honestly, they they it's important. It is very important to have a mentor as someone who's benefited from it so much. Um, and who has helped others to through this? It's something that everyone in this um, discipline, especially any STEM field, really should have. It's just it's it's key. Um, and I would suggest not just having a mentor within your field, but also outside your field. It gives you a nice holistic view of you know what you're doing. You don't want to be so narrow-minded. You want to have a a big picture of what it is that you're trying to do or what kind of career you're venturing for. So yeah, stay curious. You can learn from your failures and get a mentor. That sounds like good advice. Um, believe me, every single person needs to have mentors in both the personal and professional life. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, Jill, what about you? What, what piece of advice would you love to leave for people out there? Yeah, so as someone who is experiencing the turbulence of um, young children right now, I have three children under five right now, <laughs> um, I am coming from that perspective. My biggest piece of advice for people is if you find you need support um, in order to be your best self at work, you know, figure out what, what it is and try to work on the courage or confidence to ask for it at work. Um, because you, your perspective is needed and wanted to solve the world's hardest problems. You know, wh whatever you're working on, whether it's climate change or building the world's smallest computer chips, you, your perspective is needed. We need really good process engineers. And um, if not everybody in your team looks like you, that's okay. Um, just figure out what you need to bring your whole self to work and ask for it. Don't be afraid to ask for it. Sounds like great advice from both of you, but I think we're out of time now. So thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having us. This was wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of this. I yeah. had a lot of fun. Absolutely. Our, our pleasure. Our guests today have been Dr. Jill Craven and Dr. Ojo Ogochukwu. I'll try this again. Ogochukwu and Iguizu. Um, for more details about the topics we discussed or to find out more about do the Doing a World of Good campaign, visit doingaworldofgood.org. And that does it for this episode of Doing a World of Good. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, search for us on your favorite podcast directory or visit doingaworldofgood.org. On behalf of everyone at the American Institute of Chemical Engineers, I'm Bob Norp. Thanks for listening.